Hey, everybody. Welcome to Connect the Two podcast. We're back talking to one of our favorite analysts, Maribel Lopez. What do we know that everyone should know about Maribel before we talk to her? Maribel, well, everyone should know she's the founder and principal analyst at Lopez Research, which is her own company. So we do ask her a little bit about how she started that, how she got into tech, and we'll find out some more there. You should also know that she is a podcast professional, and we'll talk a little bit about that too. Does that make you nervous? Does that make you a little nervous? Because she's clearly better at this than us, at least better than me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's just a professional and I'm like, hi. (laughs) 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 It was so exciting to have her on, really. Yeah, she's she's great. All right. So without further ado and without, you know, hamming this up more before we actually go to the professional, let's go ahead and uh, get to our podcast with Maribel. Maribel, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Connect the Two. It's it's really a pleasure to have you. We've known each other for for a hot minute, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, a couple minutes. Um, but just having you on the podcast to talk about your career, your approach, what you're doing now, I just, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Great, so am I. And I did not know until we'd done some research that you live in Charleston. You live in Charleston? I do. I just moved here about a year and a half ago now from the Bay Area, and I'm really enjoying the move. The transition's been very smooth. I, I um, Our youngest is in college, and we sold our house to downsize, and, and I was all for Charleston. I'm like, why? We could go to Charleston. And I was like, I don't want to start over. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I- Charleston. I think at this point, if you look around the globe, many people have moved with the ability to do remote work. So it wouldn't have been that strange. You might have found a new group of people quite easily, but we're always welcome to have you when you're ready to come. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right. So let's get into the questions. We've got some great questions and I'll turn it over to Taylor. Yes. Hi, Mirabel. Thank you for joining us on the show. We're so happy to have you. Um, And I definitely want to dive more into moving during a pandemic because that sounds... Interesting. I want to know what that's like to start in a new city um, when you're not around it. But uh, we'll get into the fun and some more details later. But we do have some good questions for you that we hope our listeners uh, will be interested in hearing. Um, And the first one is, how did you get your start in tech? It's interesting. I actually, my first job was at Motorola and I was actually in the finance group in Motorola and eventually moved my way over into marketing. And Motorola is really great about educational programs. So you could actually be trained on the types of technologies that they provided. So everything from mobile phones to networking is where they were at that point in my career. So, And you just found kind of that interest area then you would say? I found that I was in a point where I knew everything financially about the products, but I knew nothing about what they did. And once I learned more about the power of technology, so to speak, I was really intrigued and hooked. Nice. Well, that shows how much interested you were in it, because I wanted to ask you next, why did you decide to start your own analyst firm in tech? I think the the choice to start an analyst firm is an interesting one. Before I started my own analyst firm, I didn't have any intention to start it. I had been working at Forrester. I had hit a point in the company where I wasn't going to be able to advance for at least several years because everybody had just um, taken all the most senior positions. And I decided I was going to go work at a technology startup. And when I looked around, I realized that the skill set that I had was not really very appropriate for a startup. And several of my clients rang and said, would you still be interested in doing strategy and research work? And I said, yes. And that is how Lopez Research was born. It wasn't out of a grand intent with a huge business plan to do so. As a matter of fact, I actually thought that no one needed another analyst firm. So why would I do that? Fortunately, a few clients convinced me otherwise. I said I'd give it a year. If I got to two years, it would be a thing. I got to two years, it became a thing. I'm now in year 14. So when I started Connect2, like I was at Sycamore and then left there to go to Hatteras and left Hatteras to start Connect2. And I really thought I was going to leave Hatteras, find a couple clients and go back inside. And I actually was negotiating with Vestbridge Venture Capital to go be their VP of marketing and then be a, uh, do the marketing for the venture firm and then be a resource to the client portfolio. Um, but I, I, I liked being my own boss, right? And I got a lot of phone calls. Like that's, the Sycamore years were good in terms of making connections and, and then you know, showing what you could do. And so it became, wait a minute, I've got five clients, 
eight clients. Oh, and I had to hire people. Now I'm like, oh, and, and we have these mugs that are, that they have our logo on one side on the backside, they, backside, they say, hashtag not our crazy. <laughs> And, and we live by that, right? Because you get, you know, you can easily get caught up in um, everyone's churn as they're trying to do things that is that are very hard. But you can take the step back as a consultant and say, yeah, but let's look, let's put this in perspective, which is a kind way of saying not our crazy. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I love the way you phrased it, because when I think of running a business, it's a combination of anxiety and power to choose what you would like to do. And both of those are wonderful, but they're both difficult. <laughs> yes. And it was, it was interesting. So since I've started, so I started this in 2003 and I've been approached by many groups from, for like CEO or founder uh, groups to join, right? Like Vest Vestige, I think is one of them. And the problem was based on our revenue, I was always getting paired with like a regional bank manager, right? Or the VP. I'm like, no, no, that's, that's not my peer. Like maybe from a PL perspective it is, but from a development and from perspective, it's not because it's not his money. Right? He's not sweating payroll. He's not um, thinking about how to grow the business. It's not, you know what I mean? It's 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 a different perspective. And so I found a group called Founders or Startup Founders that I joined recently that is actually all people that are similar to like people who've started companies. And it's been really interesting. And somewhat helpful, but just interesting to have perspective and realize a lot of times when I think it is my crazy, it's maybe not. I think having a network of people that you can bounce ideas off of, particularly people that are in a broad category of companies, so you can get to see what problems are sort of pervasive across different companies, uh, but also just to be able to share in a safe environment where you don't feel like you have to share your challenges with a competitor, but with somebody else that can really empathize with you and sympathize with you, frankly about what's going on in the business world. Well, and also say, hey, you know, we had that problem and we tried this. And all of a sudden you're like, I never considered that. And then we've actually, you know, either I've implemented stuff I've been, they, there was through those suggestions or they have through suggestions I've made. So it's been, it's actually been really sort of comforting in a way. Absolutely. I think uh, just to clarify one point here that I think is super important, I think every individual, regardless if they're a business owner or not, should have a personal board of advisors that they can go to and ask questions of and somebody that will help them walk through some of the challenges they might have. And it's important to have that be somebody that is outside of your home, outside of your workplace, that can provide perspective. Are you volunteering? <laughs> sure, I'd be happy to. Well, actually, when I first started Connect2, I did that. Do you remember Cheryl Schultz and Anita Brereton? Yes. Yeah, so Cheryl, Cheryl and Anita <clears throat> were my advisors, right? So every year we would take a trip that we would pay for um, and go and spend a half day reviewing the client work and then a half day reviewing the business. And I mean, Anita is my son's godmother, right? Cheryl's a good friend. So but there was no whole, it was, they didn't pull punches. Right. Like I remember when we first went in there and we described getting, uh, I think business week for, and she's like, I've been waiting two years for you to get a business press. I'm like, I needed clients that were business press worthy. Like it was, but it was, it was just, it was great to level set on the things that I was, it was, it was great to make sure I wasn't developing habits with the business that didn't let the business evolve. Yeah. So we haven't done a retreat since they started their business, Captain M. We really haven't had the time to do it. But yeah, so I did the very, I had those two women as my advisors for the first decade. Are you advising any startups now, Maribel? I know you've been involved with some. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the startups you've worked with. Well, there's two camps that that fits into. One camp is board of advisors and one camp is a paid service. So for the board of advisors, I've been working with, uh, am I one that just got um, acquired not that long ago. Uh, Scanty is uh, in the edge space and uh, SafeLogic, I was working with them at the beginning when they were uh, getting started and they're doing quite well now. So that's part of the board of advisor work. But then on the other side, I've been working with a lot of startups to help them figure out if they have the right message to go to an enterprise IT market and to do some product validation with those companies. And it's really interesting because I think a lot of those companies actually work with their VCs and people that are in-house with the VCs to do that. And it's nice to have 
some external perspective outside of the investing landscape as well. But not every startup is actually ready for that or interested in that. A lot of them are still very knee-deep in their engineering. So the question is, it depends. But I've had a really good time working with startups because there's so much innovation and creativity. And I think sometimes we have to make sure that we're level setting that what they're doing is fixing a problem. Well, and also that they're telling a complete story. Absolutely. Because the challenge is with a startup often is it's not just about the tech. It's about who developed the tech, who's going to distribute the tech, who's going to service the tech, who's going to scale the tech, right? Those are all things that are important that a lot of times we find companies resistant to talk about anything other than what they're making. And they should be proud of it. They should want to talk about it, but it's got to be in context. And it's got to be in context that the, the common objections that happen in a sales cycle how are you going to distribute it? How are you going to scale manufacturing? How are you going to handle supply chain? We can address a lot of that with your messaging if you are communicating all aspects of the business. Absolutely. Marketing is actually a lot more complicated than people think it is. It, you know, they, they, they just assume... <laughs> breach, that, breach. <laughs> we're, in, we're in choir now. <laughs> you know, it, and it's not like, oh, we're just going to put together a press release that says we're industry leading and awesome and throw it out the door and all of a sudden droves of orders are just going to roll into your inbox. It's a lot more nuanced. It's difficult in a very noisy environment to connect with your client. It's difficult to even figure out who the best first client is to address. And sometimes it's completely different than where you started. It's like, I'm going to target, you know, X, Y, Z, and it comes back double uh, A. And you're like, oh, who knew? <laughs> but you have to be open to that. You do. And you have to be you have to be able to gracefully pivot. You know, I know in Silicon Valley, we had this phrase uh, flying around a while that was fail fast. And a lot of the companies I was dealing with weren't really interested in failing at all. <laughs> and then we started talking yeah. about, well, let's talk about how do we pivot gracefully because things don't work and then you just have to take a different direction. So I think a lot of this is about planning for what happens next if things don't go the way you anticipated. Well, and there's such a heavy lift, especially when you're solving a market problem in a way that is completely orthogonal to the way that's been solved today, right? And it doesn't mean it's not valid, but it takes a different approach. And I, and I think a lot of companies continue to hit a screw with a hammer, right? For lack of a better analogy. And it's, um, and I, you know, so we've been doing this, what, almost 19 years as an agency and, you know, probably 30 times in that time, we've been, we've been told that it's a brand new category. Mm. And, and, you know, luckily, so I, I think honestly in, in that 20 years I've been doing this as an agency, we've, that was true once, right? But it was also better to go, you know, is it better to go in the old category, explain why it needs to evolve and how a different approach is needed and then let the analyst help you evolve this and you're carried with them. Because you can't, if you're so much better than people in the existing category, then have a foil, right? Have, have a, a set of companies you can say that you're better at no one tracks it. No one tracks or pays attention to a category of one. Oh my gosh! This is exactly. I had this discussion just the other day, and it actually is one of my pet peeves because, <laughs> well, what everyone wants to do, and I shouldn't say everyone, but a large percentage of companies come in and they will say something like, "We need a new category because we do X," and you sit there and. The first thing I, I say to a company is, I'm not sure that you're ready to spend enough money to create a new category. That's number one. <laughs> even if it were true, we're not even addressing the fact of whether or not it was true. But if it were true, I'm not sure that people really appreciate how much goes into creating a category. Like think about like Coke and Pepsi and how long it must have taken them to create the cola category. So a lot of money, a lot of time, and then the second issue is it's frequently not true. And the third issue is, and probably the most important, even if you had the money and even if it were true, an analyst can't create a ranking with one company. 
you need to have a market. Now, you can be the best in whatever that category is. You can redefine a category. You can try to move the whole category in a different direction, but you can't get any type of ranking if you're the only one on the block. And that to me just should have seemed obvious, but apparently it's not obvious because I hear it over and over again. We're a new category. We want to define a new category. And it's like, well, there are plenty of things that exist. And and the older I get, the more I think that we've seen this thing before. It was called this back then and you've evolved it. So now we can call it something else. And I'll give you a great, a, a great category example, machine to machine, which became IoT. Well, machine to machine became IoT, became edge computing, (laughs) and we've evolved it each of these times, but it's not necessarily a new category. Now, there might be new companies in it. There might be different things that we do, and this is where I get into there's lots of room to redefine something that exists or convince somebody that they should branch off, but you have to absolutely come in with more than one company. And this is the other thing that really is extremely difficult when someone does an analyst briefing. When you ask them who their competitors are and they look at you and say, well, we really don't have any competitors. It's like, that's not true. There's always something that you're competing against. Correct. It could be the way it used to be done. Yeah. 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 The, the, the place that, you know, like example, like VoIP became WebRTC for a hot minute. Exactly. And then the, the, um, the, the thing I use as a foil when people tell me it's a new category, I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about how the old categories tracked and, and progress was, was gauged. So that one is based on seats, right? Or this one's based on ports. How many seats have you sold? How many ports have you deployed? Oh, well, we haven't any yet. Okay, then you're not a new category mm-hmm. because you're giving nothing that the, the analyst community will use to gauge success on. You're not giving them anything they can use other than another company with PowerPoint. That is, that is such a great way to think about it because I think we, as technologists, as people that like to either analyze or build technology, you're enamored with technology. And there's a big difference between being enamored with technology and having a really great idea that may be in production, that may be being tested by n number of companies. But that is not the same as saying that, you know, a legacy provider that might have a billion dollars in revenue and something is dead. You know, there's a long way between where you are with a proof of concept and five enterprise IT shops and kicking out the billion dollar behemoth. And I I admire the enthusiasm, and I think you need some of that as a startup to actually get through the challenges of that, because if you didn't actually believe you were going to kill the other guy, you wouldn't do it. But I also believe at some point, you have to tip over and say, okay, how do we take this to the next level? And it's where you go beyond that thinking of, we can rule the world with this technology to saying, we can rule the world with this technology if we do A, B, and C. Right. Right. And it's, it's interesting too, because it's, there's a will behind it. Um, and, and have you found that your sort of, for lack of a better word, your BS filter has, has really gotten fine tuned over the last 15 years? Um, Yes. I would like to say that. (laughs) Yes. Let me see if I answer this politically correctly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, part of me misses the part of me misses the wild optimism that I used to have in the beginning where I would look at the shiny new toy and everything was amazing and I believed that everybody that came in could change the world. I miss a little bit of that. I feel a little jaded now comparatively, but I also feel that I've seen all the problems that can happen. So it's not that I don't want technology to be successful when people come in. It's not that I say, oh, that'll never work because it could work. But I spend a lot of time trying to explain to people the challenges that they might not have thought of so that they can get over them before they make a mistake because making the mistake and then trying to work your way out of it is not beneficial. If somebody can nicely and politely, I think this is one of the issues with um, analysts. Sometimes we're a little rough and, you know, it's the, 
your baby's really ugly as opposed to, well, you know, your, your baby has some challenges that, you know, maybe some, you know, we can address kind of a thing. So I, 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 there's a, there's a delivery that's really important in this that, um, you know, I think analysts have a lot of value, but sometimes I think you can't hear it because of the way it's delivered and that delivery well, I is think, important. And I think part of the challenge that companies have that they're not willing to, especially really innovative thinkers, is they could have the best solution to solve a real problem with a definite, defined market need, and they're just too early. Absolutely. That happens time and again. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I've had this conversation with a number of friends who founded companies. I'm like, the most important thing for you to do is one, recognize there are very few people in the world that can actually take an idea and create a company on it. It might be a very different person that can scale it. And that person might not be you. But make sure that when you go into your venture deals, you're negotiating your out so you don't get disenfranchised as the next person comes in to, to scale it. Like, just make sure that your compensation or whatever you're setting for your benchmark doesn't cut you out, doesn't marginalize you out in the process. Because I've seen too many friends just, you know, they started out, they did all the hard work for years. Someone comes, another VC comes in, brings an operational person who takes it to the next level, and they're left making pennies, and other people are making millions. Like, you have to understand your role in the process. Like, good friend of mine, he's started like six companies. And each time someone else makes it commercially viable. And that's fine. Just know your value as you set that value and are compensated by that value by the venture community, knowing that what your role is. And I think that you bring up something that's really important. And there's been all this discussion about whether or not there's, you know, a a CEO for a $1 million company, a $5 million company, 10 million, what have you. Not exactly sure if it relates to numbers or what it relates to, but I would say that, and you see it, there are serial entrepreneurs. There are individuals that really they're only interested in taking a company to a certain level before they need to go, before they're not happy and doing their best work. And I believe that if you really are honest with yourself and doing career planning, to your point, you will build that into your contracts and have an understanding that at some point you want to give this over. And many times it's before you get to see the success that you would hope to have seen. Somebody else has to carry that ball over the line. And it's typically not the person that starts the company. And even if they're still there, they've typically brought in someone to help them carry that ball. So having that understanding at the outset, I think is super important for startups. It's hard. There's so much ego involved. Absolutely, it's your company, and not 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 in an arrogance way, in a in an ownership way. Uh huh. I mean, everybody has ego when they own a company. I own Olympus Research. I have ego about it. So uh, there's yeah. a lot of control issues that were associated with that, and and I res- because of that, I really respect the challenge on the other side. Like I can see it, I can respect it, and I can try to help people work through it. But it's there and it's real, so it at least has to be acknowledged as something that we need to work on. Correct. All right. So we've we've been talking for 20 minutes and gotten through two questions. So let's, I'm going to get it back to Taylor because <laughs> I think we could you know go down many paths without actually getting to some of the questions. So let's uh, so Taylor, let's get, us, get us back on track. Yeah, of course. Well, I kind of think I'm going to rephrase what I had planned to ask you kind of off of that conversation. But I want to know if any category that you're currently researching is exciting you right now. Is there anything that you're seeing some evolution in or that our listeners might want to be tracking and following? Yeah, there are a couple things, actually. So one, I think we've spoken a lot over the past couple of years about AI, and I think it was very theoretical a few years ago, but now we're actually starting to see it being in deployment. So some of the things that excite me there are um, tools and concepts around how do we do an AI model lifecycle. And while that might not sound very interesting, What I think is interesting about it is for AI to really work well, it's a continual living, evolving thing. And you have to be able to have some process and tools to do that. So just the way we had a software development life cycle, we're now having an AI development life cycle. And I think when we get to that point, more people will start to see more business value out of it. And it'll be less theoretical and more applied. And we need to get it to applied in the right way, which gets me to the second point 
which is AI ethics. We've done a lot of stuff in AI without much consideration for, is it fair or biased? Uh, Does it have the right amount of information in it? Uh, There's just a lot of challenges, you know, explainability. You know, why did or didn't someone get a loan? You know, there's many issues that we have with AI right now. So I think that we're just starting to see large corporations and corporations in general start to consider the AI ethics. So I'm following that very closely because I think it's also going to have some implications for potential government regulation down the pipe. So we'll either get a handle on it or someone will start imposing things. So depending on which way we go, that could be exciting or imposed and not so interesting. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of activity in 5G, which on one hand, I feel like I've lived through all the Gs and I'm a little jaded about like, okay, it's another G, right? You know, we had 3G, 4G, 5G kind of thing. <laughs> you know, one day I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be at 30G world and it's just going to be shocking. <laughs> <laughs> but um, having said that, uh, some of the interesting things are happening with my clients as they look at things like private 5G in the industrial sectors and in healthcare really interesting and exciting with low latency applications that they're looking at. So there's a bunch of things, you know, there's, there are probably some wackier new world things that I'm following. And I say wackier because I feel like I've seen this rodeo before and it'll be a little different, but I'm not exactly sure how different. And that's the metaverse as an example. So I'm not sure I'm ready to personally be experiencing my whole life digitally, but <laughs> and and we did have a run at this before, but I think the technology is different now. Some of the use cases that I do think would be interesting, I've been talking to some companies about design work, collaborative design work across companies and across geographies could be really interesting in that type of environment, the next generation of digital twins, those kinds of things. Uh, so we'll see, you know, the metaverse is a TBD. Um, and I don't track crypto. So if I did, I'm sure I'd be talking to you about crypto, but I don't. So. Tell me about NFTs. Somebody explain what that is to me. <laughs> I think we'll need oh, to well. circle back as this, uh, as especially in the AI ethics like you were talking about. I think it'd be interesting to circle back with you in about a year and see what what changes have come. But we may be in the metaverse doing it um, with a AR headset or something going on. <laughs> VR. Yes. And I, I might've actually created some really cool digital product that you can buy and you can, you know, I should start digging up my tweet and seeing if anybody wants to pay for my first tweet as uh, an NFT. <laughs> uh, but I doubt that's going to happen. Nobody really cares that much about my tweets to make that interesting. So don't say that yet. Some people said <laughs> no one should buy Bitcoin back in the day, but look at it now. So mm-hmm. true. Things true change. <laughs> Um, I'll circle a little bit more into um, some of your work and outside of, um, well, maybe part of your company and you could explain it, but you have two podcasts, correct? Uh, Reimagine Hybrid Work and Elevating the Edge? Three as of this week. Three. International Women's Day, which was, uh, um, which was this week. I actually introduced a AI with Maribel Lopez. So AI with ML, which was my little pun on machine learning and Maribel Lopez. And I launched (laughs) it with three female technology executives talking about different aspects of AI. And I plan on spending a lot more time talking about aspects of AI. So yes, three podcasts now, which is a lot of production time, as you might imagine. Sure. Yeah. I did notice um, your Twitter feed during International Women's Day. That was that was good to follow. So you had a lot going on. I have to check out that podcast. Um, yeah. So how do you how do you prepare for them differently? They must, you know, they're pretty different subjects, but you want to explain a little bit about kind of waking up and thinking of a new episode? Well Two things happened. So I started with Reimagine Hybrid Work because I thought that we were really all talking about what's the future of work. And I picked hybrid work. Distributed work was just a long word. Maybe I should have picked the future of distributed work. We could we could debate about that. But I, I kind of view them interchangeably. And I was stuffing all technology topics into that. And then you realize they're wildly different. So people that are really interested in AI might not be as interested in collaboration and communications. Um, Edge computing really has its own set of uh, use cases. Now, do they all intersect? Absolutely. But is everybody interested in all the, the same broad breadth of topics on a technical front? I'd say no. So 
the reason why Joe Peterson and I, who's my co-host on Elevate the Edge, started that is because we're hearing a lot about Edge and there were a lot of new Edge companies coming about. And we thought a specific podcast on that would make sense. Um, And I mentioned why I did the hybrid work in AI. There's so much going on with AI, but it tends to be a pretty technical audience. So that actually got spun off of the other two podcasts. So how do I think about episodes? It's actually a really interesting question. Uh, Some of it is planned and some of it's organic. So for example, I have a couple of themes in AI that I'm really interested in exploring. We just talked about ethics. Automation is another theme that's really interesting. And automation could also be the human machine partnership, which could be a separate set of topics. But when you start to lay out, like you lay out from your research agenda, several topics that you'd want to speak to, but then some of it's inbound. I get some really interesting pitches, some not so interesting, but the interesting pitches, a lot of times I think this would be a great podcast because it's a format where it's a longer format than an article where you can actually explain technology in more detail in a way that's more interesting and engaging for a certain audience that might be interested in the topic. So that's the organic. Sometimes it just happens. I fortuitously get an interesting email pitch from somebody and I say, huh, that'd be really great. Let's do that. Cool. And these came about during the pandemic, correct? They like did. when you started them. They did. I think, but that's not why they started. I think one of the things that's really interesting about being an industry analyst now is the market's changed a lot. Their influencers or industry analysts, the lines between those are kind of blurry. There's uh, professional media professionals and one of the things that you start to realize is that content formats matter and getting your voice out matters and people want to know what you're doing. And the days of the you know, 10-page research report are kind of behind us. And we've yeah. seen that for some time now. And the days of blogging are still here, but they're only one kind of medium. So we've seen a tremendous bump in video, as you know, uh, from the TikTok uh, style generation. We've also seen a tremendous bump in podcasts. And I happen to really like interviewing people. So I think for my personal style, I could interview people all day long and be really happy with that because I'm curious and I get to talk to some of the greatest minds on the planet. It's like, why wouldn't you want to do that? So I started thinking if I had to publish that podcasting would be a really good thing for me. And so that's why you accepted this invite to talk to the brightest minds in the world industry. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Hey, if you've had a business that long, you're doing something well, my friend, don't shortcut yourself on that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, no, I think this is all really interesting. And I think it's because I struggle with, and we sort of have different threads of this podcast. And I sometimes struggle with having each different narrative, if you will, have its own voice. Right. For some, we talk to partners at, at sister agencies, right? Or adjacent agencies. And then some, we actually have started interviewing clients and past clients, clients about the approach we sort of developed over the years, which we call storyology. Mm-hmm. Right. Our job, we're not storytellers. We are storyologists. We help the client create the right mix that they can then present, offer up to a reporter or an analyst for them to consume. And they tell the story, right? But it has to have all the right ingredients, right? And so, you know, the analogy is cocktails because I like a good cocktail. Yeah. Um, and, the, and what's interesting is different based on the season, based on the mood based on location. Like, you know, sometimes it's a margarita, sometimes it's a Mai Tai, sometimes it's old fashioned. <laughs> sometimes it's a very dirty martini with three or four blue cheese stuffed olives. Tough day, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's a f- absolutely. Such a Friday um, recording this clearly. Such a Friday, yeah, there you go. <laughs> we see what's on his mind right now, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. See, I'm the problem. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the riff guy. Like, I'm the, I will take us off topic every time. Um, so, all right, with that note, I will. Um, go mix a cocktail and uh, let Taylor go back to the questions. Oh, no fair. It's too early. I can't have a cocktail yet. I, me either. I, I'm, I'm lying. We're all on the same think. time zone. Right? Yeah. That's, there you go. It's five o'clock somewhere. Um, yeah. So back to that. But 
Yeah, I asked about the pandemic and and I agree with you in the age of uh, video and um, podcasts are becoming so popular, but I kind of want to circle back because you moved to a new city during a pandemic. What was that like? Did you, how do you feel about um, being able to explore all that Charleston has to offer uh, during this time? So I think it's important if you move any place new that you had experienced it before the pandemic because it's different now. And it's important for you to know what it was like beforehand so you have some sense of what life could become. And I had spent some time exploring this area. So I had a feel for what the Charleston area was like pre-pandemic. Obviously, pandemic sort of changed everything. (laughs) And Uh, What it allowed you to do is to maybe explore a place in a more quiet, thoughtful way where you could go to some outdoor places and they weren't as crowded. Um, You could take time to, you know, you you weren't seeing certain things because they were closed, but other things that you might have taken years to get to were obvious, like some park that you wanted to visit or uh, gardens or boat travel or whatever, you know, whatever floats your boat, so to speak. (laughs) So I think I took it as an opportunity to explore it in a different way. And I think that made a lot of sense. I also, before I moved, was very specific in terms of trying to find an area that cared about community and would have community events once we could have community events again. And that's allowed me to meet a lot of people Uh, very quickly locally that are very close to me. So that's given me sort of insta community. But I've also recently, now that we're back into the zone of starting to open up again, I've gone to Charleston Women in Technology event, for example, Mm -hmm. and we're starting to see those kind of professional networking events come up. And I'm really excited because we have when I when I lived in California, I loved the fact that there are so many people in tech but it was a lot of people in tech. And one of the nice things I get here is that, yes, there are people in tech, but there are lots of different industries in the area. So we have a lot of um, manufacturing. So for example, we've got Boeing and Volvo and Mercedes. So, you know, we have people doing cool things that are technically related, but in different industries, we've got a lot of healthcare. We've got some interesting social good companies. So there's lots of different opportunities to network with different people. You know, I found that interesting. When we moved from Boston down to Raleigh, it was – so in Boston, everyone's in tech, at least yeah. everyone we knew, yeah. right? And every conversation had a technical aspect of it, or there were jokes about tech, or there were – you all knew the same people, and it was – and the moving here, there wasn't that. Like, as much as people try to pretend that Raleigh is a tech hub, it is a, but a small – with a small T, right? It's, it's really a satellite place for – for big companies, you know, back when Nortel and IBM and now Lenovo, that Cisco have offices here, but it's not, it's not where it started, right? So most of your friends aren't in tech, right? And so it was, it was a bit of adjustment at first for me to socially, to not have that sort of comfort or that, that tech background as a, at least a commonality. I want to pick up on that because I think it's super important for people's lives in general. Uh, One of the things I noticed, particularly as business owners, we get a little wrapped around everything's about the business. And uh, when you have younger children, that's less so. Uh, But if you're kind of past that part, then perhaps not. And what I found was really interesting about the move that you just picked up on is you have to go through this period of self-discovery, whereas what you know, who, who am I outside of my job? What are the things I like to do? Because if we're not all get going to get together and talk about tech, what are we talking about? What are we doing? Uh, and it's really forced me to kind of get out of my box a little bit and think of some things that might be different and some different ways to engage with people. And I'm still in that process, but I've at least acknowledged that that process has to happen. And it's nice to try it out every now and again, like meeting people and you know, see what you're going to talk about and what activities they would suggest that you do and things of that nature. So it's been pretty cool. It, it, was, it was, it was for me personally, it was sort of realizing, okay, what am I? All right. So if I'm not getting any cred in this conversation because of what I've done professionally in tech, what makes me interesting? And you can really, 
you know, and I, I think I was at a point where I was so vested in the career and the success I'd had a career that I was, that had credibility, right? It had nothing here. It was a, a worthless paper. And so then, you know, then I had to really start looking at what are, what I, what interests me, what I want to know more about, what about someone else that I want to know about, right? So I got really involved with um, uh, some, some charity groups. I got more involved in um, coaching my kids sports and in photography. So it just was a, it just, it was a transition, but it was painful at first. Um, you know, it's sort of like when you graduate college and you can be a BMOC and you go to your first job and you're getting coffee. Mm-hmm. Like I was back socially getting coffee. Absolutely. And it, after a certain point in your life, you're like, well, this is really hard. <laughs> it's not what I expected. <laughs> so, I mean, it was a good I'm opportunity. And I'm interesting. <laughs> Let's talk about session border controllers. <laughs> I, I still wonder if I'm interesting, truthfully, but that's a different story. I guess I'm, I'm interesting to somebody, but it I'm is. I'm old enough now where I don't care. Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> that is a wonderful thing. Still working on that. I'm a work in progress. <laughs> I now have a grandchild and then she's interesting. So I don't have to be anymore. Mm. The pressure is off. Mm. Love it. Love it. Love it. So funny. I think we're on to something for traveling here. I mean, this is really interesting. I know I have to take it back to some questions, but I'm a big community person and I, I love to travel, but I've never moved across the country, you know? So now you're giving me some, some thoughts and some reflection to think of if I do. But uh, yeah, but still kind of in uh, another question for you, just still in that a pandemic kind of conversation and I'll get over it because I know that's all we talk about. But um, <laughs> event wise, so you're saying you're going to some events in Charleston, which is great. Have you been back to the big events? Like were you, at, uh, I don't know if you were in Barcelona last uh, month, what we're talking about now or a couple weeks no, ago. No, I didn't go um, largely for two reasons. Uh, one, uh, I didn't see as many of my clients going as had gone in the past. So there didn't seem to be a pressing need Two, the international travel is a little more complicated with all the testing and everything that we're going yeah. through. Uh, but three, I've taken the pandemic and it's really, I really have a different thought around business travel now than I had in the past. And I'm not sure that mega events actually fit into my thought process anymore. So I'm ready to return to in-person events, but I'm really reconsidering the value of engagement. You know, I want to return to events that have true engagement, things like analyst days, smaller regional events, highly topical, specific events. And that's the part where you get to actually see people, spend some time engaging with them. If I think back on Mobile World Congress, I was literally, really, they were only 15 minutes when meetings when you thought about it. By the time you ran across whatever convention mm-hmm. hall, got there late, said two or three words, then you had to go and run across the other uh, hall. And I don't know if that actually delivered a lot of value in terms of deep, meaningful relationships with any clients or prospects. And so now I, I want to be more thoughtful about how I spend my time. Travel is not convenient these days. <laughs> it is sure. not pleasant. So if I'm going to go somewhere, I want to feel like we're going to be engaging with each other. The other thing that's weird is client events. A lot of vendors are inviting us to their customer events. Maybe we meet with a customer of theirs. Maybe we don't. Um, But the issue is it's their customer event. They should be there for their customers. It's not their analyst event. So while it's convenient to have us all in one place at one time, I think the priorities of the executives that you meet with, you know, should be more customer facing than meeting with analysts and and media. So I'm just rethinking what a good engagement model is. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. How how do you feel about video meetings though? Do you feel like you're getting that personal, you know, connection through um, the virtual world? So I've had, I can't tell you how many hours a week I spend on video now. (laughs) Just so I do feel like I'm getting a lot of engagement, but I also feel that sometimes it's not all video meetings are created equal, I guess is what I would say. So some are information, in which case I'm not even sure that has to be a video meeting. For example, if an executive is presenting their technology strategy to a hundred analysts, do we all need to have little tiny squares? No. 
(laughs) (laughs) which, you know, that doesn't need to be in video. If it's going to be a one-on-one with somebody, I absolutely think that video helps. And the one thing I would say is I don't want to, I don't want people to underestimate the importance of a personal engagement, but it also depends on how well you already know the person. I know a lot of my clients extremely well. I've been working with them at multiple companies over multiple years. So for me to be on video keeps the right amount of connection without me sitting in front of them. But when you meet a new customer, which I've done recently over video because it was the only way to do it, it is harder. You don't have the same sense of the person, the relationship. It's just a little harder to build that connection. So I do think you need to meet certain people in person at least a couple of times over a course of however long to kind of keep that special level of engagement. You just relate to each other differently in video than you do in person. Definitely. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I think I have uh, another one for you. Just thinking of, uh, well, for this podcast, right? We're connecting the two and we're thinking of it from our side on the PR aspect. Um, Do you find PR to be helpful to your process when you're looking for uh, new people to brief or new companies? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And uh, that's... So I find PR helpful to discover new companies that I was not thinking about that I did not know about. So that is a definite yes. The no side of that is that sometimes it's hard to get to those companies because of the massive amount of spray and pray email that you get (laughs) where it has nothing to do with you, but you still got the email anyway. I'll give you a great example. I get an email for... Um, to meet the founder of a mobile dating application. I cover enterprise IT. There's no way that I need to cover a mobile dating application. <laughs> so it was It'd be interesting. Like, it, would be, it would be interesting. It wouldn't, but it wouldn't mean anything for the company. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have a win for the company. And I might be mildly entertained, but it wouldn't have a win for me either. So I do think that there needs to be a little more filtration of what pitches you send to what companies. Yeah. And what okay. So media. yeah, I would agree. And that'll bring me to my last question then. So when you are being briefed by a new company, um, what kind of insights are you interested in finding out? Like what should they know and, and prepare and what are you looking for? Uh, so we did cover some of, okay, I'll, I'll step back and say the first thing is particularly if it's a technology company, I think that they need to have a really good sense of what the whole market is and be able to articulate where they fit into it and how it's different. And the reason I say that is back to what we talked about before. We're the only person in our space. We're a category creator or we're the best person in our space. And a lot of times I don't think they frame out the space enough for an industry analyst to understand like, well, how do you view the space? Like if you're in customer experience, that's a huge category. Like where, you know, where do you fit? Because you could be competing with n number of types of companies. So if someone does that, it can be really helpful because it helps me understand their chance of success. And it helps me understand if there's a different viewpoint of the market that I didn't think about. Because I've got my own viewpoints in every market. And I think that when people come together in a meeting, we frequently don't understand that we might be using the same terms, but have completely different definitions of what that market means. So level setting on what the market is, I think is important. And then that's sort of an exchange of like what that should look like. And then I think real insight on what customers are struggling with and how your solution relates to that problem. Uh, Because they can come in with interesting insights on how the technology could be used, but oftentimes I feel it's a, dis- a disconnect between who might actually be using it and why. So a little more insight on what the customers are struggling with is to me, somebody that says, okay, you've thought about the problem and you're an expert resource in this because not only do you know about your technology, but you kind of know what the customer's struggling with. And when you think of the story in the box kind of concept, it's usually the technology, why, it's, why it matters and is interesting 
who is using it or who could use it and why. And I think a lot of people fall down on the who could use it and why, and they spend more time at the front talking about how it's a industry-leading, market-revolutionary product. And like, okay, if you take out all those words that you know everybody is going to use, what am I left with? So I think if they can execute on those, that, that would be important. And then f- the third thing is talking about how the market, how they expect the market to evolve and how they expect this technology to enter the market and be successful. You know, do they start by doing one module of what you do and layering it? Um, is it done in the cloud or on-prem or both? I mean, there's all these, you know, does it go through partners or not? All those things I think have to be discussed for the analysts to understand how they perceive the market and to get some new ideas and consider them an expert source. So I think that's interesting that if you pare back all the descriptors, what's left, uh-huh. right? Now we, we do this exercise called a messaging framework where we invite all the executives and before they come in, they have to write the top three values of the company as they see it on a piece of paper. Uh-huh. And we get them, we put them all on the, a board, right? And the, the, the surprise or not surprise is you never get just three, you get like 12. Yeah. Right. So there's a disconnect in how the company values itself. So then we pivot off that and we start to talk about, okay, so tell us when you're in a customer sales cycle, what are they looking for? What are the value you're solving? What's the problem you're solving? So we come up with a different list. And then we go back to the list of 12 things or 10 things and they never match. I'm like, so is it better for you to talk about the things as you see it or is it better to talk about your products based on what they're looking for? And then you, know, you see people sitting in a, first of all, in the room that they think they know they're all on board with their messaging and they've got their arms crossed and they start to engage. And then they're, A, they, you get buy-in, they start realizing we're much better off if we're talking about how our product solves the problem they're looking to solve, right? And, it's, and it reframes how they, how they talk about things and it really changes the, the dynamic of the conversations they're able to have because then, then clients are going, that is my problem. You know what? We've been challenged with that. We were talking about the other day, as opposed to them trying to figure out how this innovative technology you have fits. And so the one thing I would really recommend that every customer, every every company do is talk to prospective customers and talk to them up and down the stack, you know, smaller ones, potentially larger ones uh, in different geographies. That's the other thing. We can be very insular. Wherever the technology is built, you know, that's the problem that you're trying to solve. And when you want to take it to another geography later, that might not be the right problem. It could still be an answer for a different problem. So I think having an understanding of the different sizes of customers, the different geographical issues, like for example, regulation is wildly different across the globe. And therefore certain things work better than not, you know, where you have to keep your data as an example. So. Yeah, absolutely. One well, and where, and that way you also get an understanding of where the common objections might be, because there are patterns of objections. You have this type of objection in sales. You have this type of objection in finance. You have this kind of objection in procurement. Right. You can then start to anticipate those so that that process is streamlined. So I have one uh, question for you, and you may or may not have heard of this. I'm sure you have, given how long you and I have both been in the industry. Have, have you ever played... We're quite young. If anyone knows, we're quite young. We're quite young. Uh, this is why we're not on video. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Facts. Um, press release Mad Libs. Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorite things oh, yeah. to do. You know, take three press releases within the industry, scratch out the name of the vendor, maybe scratch out the product name. And then see like how many names you could insert where it would almost be the same. Yeah. And it, it's a, it's amazing how many times they would get press releases. And I'd be like, you know, if you cut your name out of that and inserted your competitor's name, how far do you have to get into the release before you say, oh, that's not us. And sometimes you can get right. all the way to the end before you could say that's not us because you didn't put enough interesting meat in it and you're all saying the same thing. So it's an interesting exercise for companies to play. So for me as a PR person where I have, I, I, I can tell that I'm not really digging deep enough is I have a phrase that I, and, and I'll develop every once in a while a new phrase crops up to replace it. But the phrase I had up until about 
six, eight months ago until I caught it was extend the range and reach. And I bet if you go across, across clients, you will find that phrase in multiple press releases because it, it articulated what I was trying to convey. And then I defaulted to, and I'll use an easy phrasing, right? And don't go, don't actually Google that. Um, but you will see probably in multiple clients that phrase. And it's just my, um, when I, when I know that I catch it, then I can go back and scrub things and make sure it's not, but it also forces me to think differently, right? I know, I know there's a phrase I've used twice. I've been careful not to use it in more than one client, but it's a phrase and it's talking about broadband when broadband goes from early adopter to mainstream and main street. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is a very fun phrase, but it's very, it'd be very easy to start using that across multiple clients that are all in the broadband market, which is really hot now because of the, uh, and I, 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 J, A. Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So that this wraps up our interview portion um, at 55 minutes of lovely conversation. And we're now going to play two games. So, so Taylor is going to take you to the first game, and then I'm going to take you to the second game. Okay. And then we'll wrap. Okay. Bring it on. All right. Okay. So this is going to be a rapid fire, this or that. It's a little techie edition for you. Mm-hmm. All right, rapid fire. LinkedIn or Twitter? LinkedIn. Podcasts or audiobooks? Podcast. I wasn't sure if I'd get a surprise there from you. Smartphones or tablets? Smartphone. Samsung or Apple? Ooh. Can't do that. You might say no to this one too then. Teams or Zoom? Zoom. All right. And VR or IRL, so virtual reality or in real life? Uh, <laughs> in real life. All right. There was a company. There was a company in Wilmington that started that was called. It was a play on FOMO. Hmm. Uh, I think it was called JOMO. Um, <laughs> that was that. I was like, I want to. I, I I will do their PR for free because I think that's so important. Um, all right. So last game. Call, and this we've never played this game before. Never have I ever. Okay. So I'm going to say a statement, and you have to honestly admit whether you've done this or not. Okay. And I don't know any of these are true, okay? Okay. All right. Um, never have I ever left a conference early for a fun work-adjacent activity. No, I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Never have I ever played solitaire during a long, boring interview. Never done that. Not a solitaire fan. Okay. Never have I ever pretended to understand an obscure technical term when it was really unfamiliar. Oh, heck, what analyst doesn't do that? <laughs> I do that all the time. I texted that to Taylor earlier today. I'm like, I just, it just acts like, oh, yeah, you mean, okay. I, I do that all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Right, never, ever, never have I ever terminated an interview early because the subject was rude. Because the subject was rude? The, the person, the, the, the person. interviewee. Oh, God, I'm so lucky. I rarely get rude people. So, no, I've never terminated one early because I was rude. I have walked out of an in-person event because somebody was extremely rude. So, mm-hmm. Well, that counts. Okay. That counts. All right, so never have I ever called, out, called someone out when they were clearly trying to bluff their way through an issue. Yeah, I don't do that. It's not my nature. So I've never- Oh, I see. Uh, I, I was hoping. I, there's so many times like I've sat in pitches. Like when we're pitching someone and they're telling me their their solution, I'm like, "Oh, if we work with them, we need to make sure we're getting paid by ACH because <laughs> this is not going to go anywhere." Um, hashtag not my crazy. Well, see, this right, is so the never- difference between your baby's ugly and I think you know we could we need to you know help fix some of the challenges your baby has. So yes. ACH babies are ugly. Um, <laughs> never have I ever um, told someone you were busy when you really just weren't interested. I've done that. Yeah, I've done that. <laughs> never have I ever accepted a speaking opportunity based on location of the conference. God, I wish I got more great speaking opportunities that were in cool places. Like, <laughs> really, really want that. Like Vegas and Orlando, I am over it. 
Yeah. But if there's one in Key West, I'm all in. Oh, yeah. Um, that matters. Right, Location never. matters. Location matters. In everything. Yes, absolutely. Um, never have. You like Nashville? I like Nashville. Got great music. All right, I, all right. We'll talk to you after this about Nashville. Um, never have I ever told a company their idea wasn't viable. Have you ever said your baby's ugly? Yes, but boy, it took a lot. <laughs> It'd be really quite bad to get there. All right. All right. Well, that wraps it up. That wraps up our questions and the rest of the podcast. Um, thank you for spending so much time with us today and you know, certainly going down the rabbit hole a few times with me on on, on topics. But um, you know, we will let you get back to your day. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's our show today. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much to Maribel for joining us. She was a professional, Rich. We were right. And we tried. <laughs> she was. She was. We did, She and I coasted for a while down memory lane. And I think we just kind of riffed off each other, which, which I, mean, I think back to when I first met her, we were, you know, we were both young in this, entering this market. She was at Forrester, I believe, and I was at Sycamore Networks. And um, so there's a lot of history there. And it was kind of fun to walk through memory lane a bit. She was a lot of fun. I think that we have a million other conversations I could come up with with her just on her life and her move across the country and what she heard that insight she gave us about being in a pandemic was so interesting too. So I definitely would love to chat with her down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely want to stay in touch. Anyway, well, thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Connect the View podcast. Um, we'll be back shortly with more episodes, talking to partners, talking to press and analysts, and talking about the programs we have here at Connect the Two. Connect, connect to two, connect to two, connect that to what, what's our company called? Connect. We're connecting. We're just connecting. That's all yeah, we're just connected. We're very connected. We're well connected. We're maybe too connected. Too, too, huh? Ooh, and too see that? connected. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, thank you for joining us, and um, we will uh, talk to you next time. Thank you.